thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. On katetalk.co.za On the app On DSTV channel 885 And across the city on 567am Join the conversation This is Cape Talk This is Cape Talk 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. A very good morning to you. It's Friday and it's time for Dr. Chris Smith, uh, known as the Naked Scientist. He's ready to answer all your science-related questions, uh, Doctor. A very good morning to you and welcome to the show. Morning. Morning. How are you today? I am well. Our very first question this morning comes off the WhatsApp line on 0725671567. If I boil water in a plastic kettle and another in a glass kettle, will one boil faster than the other? Or will they boil at the same time and the same heat? Everything has what's called a specific heat capacity. That is the measure of how much energy you have to add to increase the temperature of that thing per kilogram or or gram of that substance per degree centigrade. And it doesn't matter whether you have water in a plastic kettle or a glass kettle, the water will require exactly the same amount of energy, assuming you've got exactly the same amount of water, to raise it by exactly the same temperature. But obviously the two systems are a bit different because plastic takes a lot less energy to heat up and is a less good conductor of heat than glass. So therefore, a glass kettle will soak up more heat from the system. You'll have to put more energy in to warm the glass as well as the water compared with the plastic kettle. So I would say probably the most efficient system because it will be losing less heat to the surroundings and losing less heat warming up the plastic that you're not going to use in your cooking or drinking of beverages. I'd say the plastic kettle's the better bet. The water will be identical in terms of the energy consumption, but the kettle, in other words, the what it's made of plus the water, that's going to make a big difference. Doctor, I saw a clip online where the, um, I'm not sure what this is, where uh, Levi Jean CEO uh, said that he puts his dirty jeans in the freezer for a couple of days. Does this technique work? And that's a question coming in from Martin. Well, if it comes in from the, the person who's the CEO of the one of the world's best-known jeans brands, then he must know a thing or two about jeans, I'd presume, and not in the genetic mm. sense. I, I don't know the rationale for putting your jeans in the freezer. There must be a reason. Whether or not that's doing something to the human-made muck, which is on the jeans or not, I don't know. But if anyone knows what the rationale for doing that is and whether it really is evidence-based, do let us know, because I don't. Another question coming in very quickly. Do animals adapt to their surroundings? And I think this person was referring just basically to, you know, animals deep down in the sea with uh, the seismic activity that's going to be happening. Uh, You know, animals at very, very low levels in the sea where you they would, for instance, adapt certain things like their smell, their, their, their sight and things like that. So animals adapt to their surroundings, isn't it? Everything adapts. And everything adapts in short terms and long time scales. In the short term, some animals do compensate for things that happen in the environment, including things that we do. 
in the longer term, they can evolve and change to become better at coping with that. Now, a really good example of this in a, in a very close-to-home setting is the birds that live in cities. As humans have spread out across the globe, we've made cities and we've put enormous numbers of people in them. And in some cases, we've made a home for wild animals and birds. In other cases, we have encroached on their existing homes. And this has had an interesting impact because, of course, one of the things we do is we produce a lot of light and we produce a lot of sounds. And when people have looked at the way in which birds accommodate that in, in, impact on their life, the most notable, most remarkable thing, I think, is in the songs of birds. If you record birds that sing of that same species, not in a town or city where there's lots of traffic noise, you tend to record very different choices of, of frequencies of songs, especially historically, compared to birds today. And people have done this and, and looked at how birds have compensated. They're shifting the register of their singing. They're using slightly different combinations of notes and different frequencies, which are better at cutting through the very deep bass rumble that industry and heavy traffic and human activity tend to create so in other words we drown them out by making a racket and they compensate or adapt to sing in a slightly different way so they still manage to exploit some of the benefits because there are there are benefits to living in cities as well food tends to be easier to come by there are more places to hide there are more places to nest and it's warmer so some animals have actually found they quite enjoy life in the city but at the same time, they've had to compensate to keep the mating and dating side of their lives active because of the noise we make. I've got Muhammad in Woodstock on the line. Muhammad, a very good morning to you and welcome to the show. Morning. Uh, I live in the city and uh, I spent a few days at the coast. Does the sea air tire you out more, more quicker than what the air in the, in the city does? Because I felt a bit, you know, for the couple of days I spent over there, it was a bit uh, tiring. <laughs> I don't, think, um, I don't think so, Mohammed. I think what's going on is that uh, you probably needed that couple of days off. And what you did was to work like Billio and be really busy and frantic and hectic planning everything and getting off on your weekend down by the coast. You had a weekend down by the coast and thought, I'm going to make the most of this because weather's good, scenery's good, life is good, out with people, enjoy the place. So you did a lot, having done a lot, and then you came home and thought, God, I need a holiday and a weekend off to recover from my weekend off. I, I suspect that actually it was the change of scene and the planning to go there that made you more tired to start with because you did more. Well, what about the salt content? <laughs> well, there is certainly material in the air from the ocean. Scientists can record various compounds, sulfur compounds, iodine compounds, salt blowing off the sea. It's in the air. As you walk along the coast, you are exposed to more of it. That's true. But that is not going to contribute so much to you feeling more tired. I don't think so. I think there are other factors in terms of lifestyle factors and the kinds of way we tend to live our lives and when we have a rest it tends to put us into a relaxation mode and that makes you actually want to relax more because you do begin to unwind and that makes you feel tireder so i think in your case you just you just need to have another holiday you need to get down the coast more often you need a holiday from your holiday, Muhammad, and that's what uh, Dr. Chris is saying uh, this morning. Dr. Chris Smith with us this morning is the Naked Scientist. You can find uh, all the details and discussions on his website at thenakedscientist.com. Uh, we've got a voice note in this morning, Doctor. Morning, um, morning, Dr. Chris. I'm curious what causes an itch, not the itch caused by dry skin or a allergic reaction or a rash, 
but just that one off itch in the middle of your back or back of your head um, that it only gets better if you give it a scratch out of the blue what causes that itch and i guarantee mm. half the population listening to this are now reaching for that spot in the middle of their back thinking oh, i feel a bit itchy everyone's shrugging their shoulders now the minute you start to talk about itchiness everyone starts wondering do i itch and then they convince themselves they do itch and then everyone has a good scratch the answer to this is the reason we have an itch sensation in the first place is because we have a population of nerve cells in our skin that are dedicated to conveying the sensation of itch. They're there because across our evolution we've been preyed upon by various parasites that burrow and drill and dig holes in our skin. Mosquitoes are the obvious one but there are various worms and other parasites that make holes in our skin and infect us. So being aware that there are parasites and other nasties trying to invade our bodies through our skin is an important defence mechanism. And that's why you have this population of nerve cells that communicate using very specific nerve transmitter chemicals with the spinal cord. And the way it works is that you have a network of nerves crossing your body that know where something's happening on your skin. You also have a network of nerves that are an itch signal and the brain puts the two together and says the itch signal is on and this area is where it's happening so you can localise where particularly on your body surface you are experiencing this itchiness. And when you scratch an itch, there are another population of what we call low-threshold mechanoreceptors which are basically the nerve fibres that sense when you are stroking or rubbing skin or scratching skin and when you activate those by going scratch 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 they feed back in your spinal cord and inhibit or turn off the activity of the nerves that are the itch nerves so in this way you have a system for detecting when something might be happening on your skin surface and you have a way of switching it off a bit like the burglar alarm going off and then you go and press the reset button so you you know you've paid attention to it the ultimate goal is to alert you to something that might be happening on the skin the reason you get the odd false alarm can be because a range of irritants will stimulate those nerve cells in the same way that the thing they're trying to detect would it's a bit like going to the burglar alarm analogy again a burglar's not breaking into my house, but the cat leapt up on the windowsill and it triggered it off. False alarm. Basically, a hairy jumper, some other chemical itch, something on the skin that irritated the skin in that point. The skin got itself a bit twisted up. The nerve cell that was the itch nerve cell for that particular area went into a, in a spasm of, of extra activity temporarily and made you experience an itch that you wouldn't otherwise have had. But a very important system that keeps us safe from a whole range of nasties if you don't have it. Carol is on the line from uh, Durbanville. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. I would like to know why I can't hear myself snoring, but I can hear my husband snoring. Oh, Carol, that's because you don't snore. There you go. That's the answer. No, uh, I mean, more, more seriously, last week, okay. last week, Carol, we talked about this condition called sleep paralysis, which is where the body gates the information that's flowing out down the spinal cord to make us move when we go to sleep. And it stops us thrashing around quite so much and sleepwalking and falling out of bed when we sleep. We also have a system which is there to delete signals that are coming in from outside that we know we're expecting to experience and this is because if we were to pay attention to every stimulus and every bit of information coming in we'd go into neural overload and we'd have a nerve meltdown we just could not pay attention to everything 
Because if you think about it, your clothes are on your skin, your bum is on a seat or your feet are on the ground, there's sounds from clocks ticking, uh, traffic going by, there's things going on in your peripheral vision. All this sensory information is flooding in all the time to the brain. But we only pay attention to one spotlighted set of things that we want to attend to. The way the brain deals with this is that there is a region up in your brain where it takes the signals that it knows are likely to be arriving and gets rid of them. So in other words, I know, for instance, that if I reach out and try to tickle myself, I'm making a movement that will elicit a tickle sensation. My brain is therefore expecting a tickle sensation to come back from that patch of my body and it suppresses that information because it's predictable and it knows it's coming from me so it can ignore it because it's much more important to pay attention to things that I can't predict which might come along and, and, and harm me. And in the same way, when we go to sleep, our breathing, heart beating, snoring, our movements, the sensation of our, our pyjamas on our body, all are predictable and the body gets used to those being there and deletes them from the sensory information being presented to you. But your husband's snoring is an external stimulus. You can't predict that. Your brain doesn't know that's coming. And so it can't suppress it and zone out to it quite so easily. And so instead, it just keeps you awake at night. There we go, Carol. That's why you can hear your husband snoring, but you can't hear yourself snoring. Uh, Dr. Paul is on the line. Paul, a very good morning to you and welcome to Cape Talk. Hi, hi there. I'd like to know whether we'd ever be able to artificially insert memory into the brain. In other words, I want to be fluent in Mandarin by tomorrow morning, could I be rendered subconscious? And when I wake up, they have put that information in my brain. Uh, Paul, it, it's a tantalizing, <laughs> tempting thought that we could imbue ourselves with all kinds of knowledge with not much effort. But regrettably, the system is so complicated and so disseminated all over the brain in terms of the processes that store these memories, it, it at the moment is impossible to do that. We can certainly read people's thoughts now, and that sounds pretty scary, but you absolutely can ask people to go into a brain scanner and you can look at the patterns of brain activity. And if you've trained a computer algorithm, what sorts of brain patterns people make when they have certain experiences or imagine certain things or look at certain things, you can put back together from the brain imaging and brain activity patterns a picture of what that person is seeing in their mind's eye. And if you want to look the research up, Jack Gallant did this uh, from California about 10 years ago. It's amazing. But what we can't do at the moment is to put back into the brain similar sorts of patterns of activity that would correspond to meaningful information. You can stimulate bits of the brain electrically and you can elicit memories, including motor movements and motor memories, from certain parts of the brain by stimulating them but that's recalling already implanted or laid down memory. What you're unable to do is to put fresh patterns in there. And probably the reason for this is that when we make a memory, it's a multi-step process. The first step is having the experience or thinking about the thing you want to remember. The second step is that the hippocampus, which is the structure, it's called hippocampus because it, it looks a bit like a seahorse on both sides of your brain and your temporal lobe. This produces a sort of electronic version in a short-term memory of the thing you want to remember and then via some process that we're not really sure how it happens that memory is consolidated or translated to connections physical connections between nerve cells in different parts of the brain 
and some nerve connections are weakened, some are strengthened. And specifically, these are structures called synapses, which is when one nerve cell reaches out and touches a remote nerve cell, and between the between the two where they touch is this chemical connection called a synapse. And this can either be strengthened or weakened. And by altering the pattern, strengthening or weakening of these different connections between nerve cells, that is the basis for a neurological memory. And when you recall a memory, you basically activate that circuit and the way in which it changes the presentation of information to your consciousness is recalling the memory. We can wipe out memories, and scientists have actually made compounds which, if you inject them into certain parts of the brain, will unstitch those synaptic connections and, in that way, blank out whole memories. But because different memories are stored in different places in the brain in different ways, you've no control over what memories you are removing. So it's sort of amnesia, but not as you know it. So I wouldn't go down that path if I was you. But no is the answer to your question, unfortunately. While it's a beautiful thought and it's something we all crave, gosh, could I go to night school literally by sleeping and educating myself at the same time? Unfortunately, when we, we might be there one day, but we're not there at the moment. Dr. Chris Smith chatting to us this morning. He's the Naked Scientist and the information as well as the podcast and everything else available on thenakedscientist.com. Good morning. I'd like to know why the color of the sea varies from close inshore being a deepish shade of green and then there can be a, a line exactly where the color goes darker towards a blue color. And this is evident in False Bay. I was wondering if there is an explanation for that. Thank you. This is Paul. Hi, Paul. Thanks very much, Paul. The answer is that water uh, looks blue because when you shine light through water, the connections between water molecules are the right size to absorb red light. And that has the effect, if you've got a spectrum which has got red right through to blue light and you remove the red, it makes the colour look blue. And so that's why when you cut yourself and bleed underwater, apart from attracting jaws, blood looks a dark colour, brownie black, because there's much less red light underwater to illuminate the red blood and reflect the red light back at you to make the blood look red, so it looks black. So water naturally is going to look a blue colour, because it's absorbing red light. So the, the, the colours of light that come back at you are chiefly going to be more shifted towards a blue colour. You see the same thing with ice. If you look at the ice uh, when you see, for instance, the edge, edge of an ice sheet side on in Greenland or down in Antarctica, you see this beautiful deep blue colour in the ice. It's the same phenomenon. Ice is absorbing because of the connections between the water molecules, red light, and it's reflecting, therefore, a, a more blue-dominated spectrum, so it looks blue. But superimposed on that natural coloration of water is going to be local effects because of what's in the water. And what is often in water are marine algae, plankton. And these so-called phytoplankton, they're single-celled plants, and they're green. They have chlorophyll in them. So, therefore, where you have a lot of material growing in the water it will lend its own colour to the water because green is in the light is going through the water, no problem, will reflect back at you. So you will see green coloration superimposed on the blue coloration and you'll get the most phytoplankton where 
you've actually got a good area for plants to grow. Where do they tend to grow? Well, they're going to grow in shallower water, warmer water, nutrient-rich water. That means closer in, not farther out. So you tend to see a sort of margin close to the shore where there'll be plants that will, these marine plants will grow. They will use the nutrients washing off the land, off of farms and so on, from the animals that also live closer into shore. And the animals are contributing nitrogen and other uh, materials which the plants can assimilate and there's nice sunshine there. As you go out farther then often the sea will go very, very deep all of a sudden because there's very often, say, uh, a, a particular margin where it suddenly goes straight down off of a shelf and becomes very deep. This means that um, the currents, which might be bringing nutrients up from the deep water and washing them onto the shelf, they're not going to wash the water up beyond that shelf. So that's why you get these abrupt colour changes. So there'll be a range of factors here. It's going to come down to temperature. It's going to come down to nutrients, plants, depth of water and the natural blue colour of water. And that answers your question about the colour of the sea. Dr. Yes, another voice note. Good morning, this is uh, John here. I do have a question for Dr. Smith, um, the naked scientist. I hope I can ask the question intelligently and, and in the right way. I think I know that the four universal forces are gravity, electromagnetism, and the weak and strong nuclear forces. I just want to know, why isn't thermodynamics, specifically the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, also not a universal force. We have very specific definitions of, of what constitutes a force. Something that can actually apply a force, make something else feel a force or want to move. And entropy doesn't work like that. Entropy is one of the most amazing, I think, leaps of thinking. And, and I remember it totally changed my perspective when I was learning chemistry and I learned about Boltzmann and the people who uh, came up with the concepts of entropy over 100 years ago and suddenly everything fell into place, why things happen, why chemical reactions happen. But entropy is a concept, the, the law of thermodynamics, things moving from a state of order to more disorder, from a state of where there's a lot of something to less of something everywhere, that is not a force so much as a concept and therefore entropy is a useful way to explain why things happen but forces are actually things entities that make things happen so they're actually not comparable it's a bit of an apples and oranges comparison henry from neisner very good morning to you and your question for dr chris smith good morning chris it's more a philosophical question i want to understand or try and figure out what's in it for the virus because you know it infects the host and then it kills those that's the end game so what what uh, What's in it for it? It's not. It's not procreating or carrying on. Especially something. It, it's the same applies for HIV and for cancer. I mean, cancer is not transmissible, as I understand it. So it gets into a host, kills the host, and by de facto kills itself. So you know, what's the end game? Hi, Henry. With viruses, actually, the end game is to keep in in circulation to per perpetuate yourself. Viruses are effectively infectious bags of genes. They're so tiny that the only thing you can fit into a virus is the genetic message that tells the virus how to make more viruses. And it sounds a bit daft, doesn't it? This thing just exists for the sake of making more of itself, but really, I suppose, humans are just a more complicated way of doing the same thing. But the, the virus doesn't have a goal in mind. The virus is a chemical entity. It's not alive in the sense that it doesn't think and have thoughts and, and have plans like you and I do. But what it does do is it follows the rule that you go into a cell, 
you make lots of yourself, you come out of that cell and you infect more cells, either the cells of the person you're in or cells of another person. But either way, you're sustaining yourself in the circulation. Now, some viruses do this in a way that means that they are very, very acute and they leap on a person and they make them really ill and really infectious really quickly and then they leap off of that person hopefully quickly enough before they kill that person and they're on to the next one. Ebola is a good example of a virus like that. Other viruses are much more mild and rather than just cause all their hosts to perish and obviously you you run out of hosts if you do that like you're suggesting. So viruses which have adapted to their hosts and been evolving with their hosts for a long time and a good example of this would be flu for example or measles. They can be very infectious and make people very infectious very quickly and immune in the aftermath but they leap onto the next person and then infect them but the person might then not remain immune for a really long time. So in other words, you, you don't kill off your host. You, you leave them behind in the population and either leave them alone to reproduce and make more hosts for you in future, which is effectively what measles is doing, or you rely on them losing their immunity after a while, which is what flu and coronavirus is doing. So it's not a given that viruses want to kill off their hosts and even do kill off their hosts. There are many viruses that rely on the survival of their hosts. And another example of that would be HIV, which uh, it needs you to hang around fairly long term so it can pass itself on to lots of other people. If it killed you too quickly, then there wouldn't be enough opportunity to transmit to other third parties. Same with herpes simplex virus and chickenpox virus. These actually rely on you being viable and staying alive for your entire lifetime, but remain infectious for your lifetime so you can pass those viruses on to other people. So it's horses for courses here and different viruses have different strategies, but their end game is not to wipe out their hosts. Most viruses evolve to be much more benign over time so they don't wipe out their hosts and in that way they maintain themselves with a big pool of people they can infect and keep themselves in circulation Henry I hope that answers your question that's Henry from Neisner you can get all the details that we've been discussing at thenakedscientist.com Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.